You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's seen a million faces, and he's rocked them all. <laughs> That's Mr. Me. Jeff McLarge Huge. Hey. hey, Bill. Hey, everybody. <laughs> What's up? How's you doing? Oh, I'm all right, man. How are you? Uh, good. Everything is uh, is great. It's it's October, so I'm busy. Actually, I'm not busy. Yeah. I'm busy enough. Busy enough. Yeah, same here. Um, busy, busy enough. I don't know what that means because, you know, it's been such a strange year. Yeah. Normally I have my, you know, my normal September stuff where I'm working at the King Richard's Fair and I'm working with the the haunted house. But, you know, it's 2020 and stuff is terrible. Right. So uh, <laughs> actually, I got I got a, a few things that are keeping me occupied. It's just not normal. It's just not my normal. No, my, not my normal September. Not, not your normal September. It's not my normal September either. My uh, my daughter's doing school remotely again, although some kids are back in school, and it's been a weird kind of crazy adjustment here. So all, all kinds of just general. The, the days just keep getting a stranger. So. Yeah, we've learned one thing about ourselves, some of us anyway, this year, is uh, we're resilient as hell, aren't we? Some of us are, I guess. Yep, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I want to answer yes or no to that. <laughs> But it seems like some of us are uh, more so than others, I guess. I don't know. Think about it. Like six months ago, we really had just like the rug pulled out from underneath That's us true. on the way we lived our lives. Right. You know, we basically figured out how to do other stuff, you know? Yes. Which I think is what you have to be able to do. Well, it's just true. <laughs> like I, I, I found more time to read and write and more recipes to cook and more ways to sort of get around with what I have as opposed to constantly trying to find other things to do. So right. like there's that sort of weird introversion that's so unusual that I've become quite accustomed to. That so that's one thing. Yep. You know. That the thing that struck me like today as I was thinking about Madonna of all people, Madonna crossed my mind. And the reason why she crossed my mind is I was just thinking about how why don't you make music anymore you know you, you when was the last time madonna came out with an album of original music like forever ago right yeah I don't know. and i think the main reason would be is she has an income limit at social security it could be that could be one reason yeah <laughs> I mean, just um, gonna throw that out damn i'm not ages yeah, yeah. or anything but she's been she's been in the business for an awfully long time and i'm sure she's got a good pension now what i'm really getting at is like madonna <laughs> isn't going to put out an album unless she can tour behind it. Right. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. that's, that's where the money's at Right. because she doesn't have this ability to tour at the moment. Why put out an album? And that's where I always go on about how much I don't like pop music. 
And, you know, you and I see different lights we on that. We definitely are different in that respect, yes. Yeah, you do like pop music. I, do. I don't. And the reason why I don't like pop music is that reason there. It's like if you are a musician and you truly love music, then make music, not just make a payday, says the biggest Kiss fan that you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and I, yeah, and I'm somebody who's like, I'm the modern Kiss fan. I like Taylor Swift quite a bit, who in the in the, the period of her career has gone from sort of, she was never indie darling, but like sort of thrust into pop music by virtue of television, put out some Yeah, she amazing, started out country, she, right? Right, yes. Put out some amazing, amazing early, like modern country, pop country records. Went, did the diva thing, did some folk stuff, did some, some stuff in between, and all of it has been interesting. If not all of it has been good. The, mm. the, the diva period is less... Is It's great roller skating music, and I sing along to it like an idiot if it's on in the car but i don't sit at home and put it on and sit and listen to it where i do with red and i do with 1984 and i do with some of the weird like takes on songs that she's done on her later records so there's a great version of her playing lover from an older episode of saturday night live where it's just her and a piano and you can see and hear just how fantastically talented she is when she plays that song and it's it's 180 degrees different from look what you made me do to the <laughs> point where to the point where it's it may as well be a different artist altogether but that i think that girl at the piano by herself is really really her and, and like i get that from pop music from other artists too like they have that ability to do that even though they're putting out music that's more like look what you made me do because that's what makes money they still have the chops to be able to like really jam out something that will certainly stand the test of musical time i'd like to see that i'd like to see more people like taylor swift or whoever else you know comes to mind mm -hmm. you know just put out stuff i wonder if they're contractually allowed to do that could they put out a youtube video of them just playing behind a piano like that i'm sure i mean she she dropped a record without anybody thinking about it back in august oh uh, yeah or, that's or right. july that right Took everybody by surprise. Right. Just, hey, here you go. I had nothing to do for seven weeks. Here's an album. <laughs> hey, yeah, but you know what? The thing is, like, that album's great. Yeah, I heard a yeah. lot of people liked it a lot. Let's get on to the show. All right. Let's make a podcast. It is right. the week beginning, October the 12th, and you will start. October 12th, 1979. Uh, a book very close to my heart, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The first of five books in the series is published, written by Douglas Adams. I'm, I'm not sure who the publisher was originally but it's been in print since then uh in various formats uh the and name simon and schuster comes to mind maybe yep i, I don't know be. i don't know i don't know if they had a science fiction imprint in 79 but 79 is when it was when it was first published it comes out of a radio show that was oh. incredibly popular from in the preceding year Oh, I used to have all of them. I used to have those yep. tapes. It was yep. like, uh, like, I, like somebody, one of my friends, like bought it for some girl that he liked, and then she let like a bunch of people borrow it. He actually ended up like basically, he, he was buying it for this girl to try to like you know woo her, uh, but he ended up buying it for like eight or nine of us is what it came out to. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks, dude. Loved hey. it. Hey, Loved look what your it. girlfriend gave me. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the I girl had, you liked? The one you gave those audiobooks to? I ended up dating her. <laughs> she just she just copied the tape. She didn't even say anything. <laughs> 
She never even she listened to, to him. Nothing. She didn't even listen to him. Yep. Yeah, right, she had so her brother anyway, tape him. So anyway, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, I was introduced to it pretty early on. Like, I'm not going to say 79, but I think I was introduced to it until like 1981. Uh, my yeah. next door neighbor, Carolyn, she had a very interesting cousin who was into a lot of interesting things. And she's the one that like turned us on to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, she turned Carolyn on to the Dune series, but um, I, I read like a sixth grader, so that never happened for me. <laughs> but the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I um, it's so multi-formatted. They had yeah. the radio show, and then the yep. books, and then the book came out. Yep. Then they made the TV series, which is more That's based. Right. It was more based on the that was like BBC. It was more yep. like the, uh, the the radio series. As a matter of fact, they had all the same actors. I think you said right. Yeah, same actors as uh, as the voice actors, and it was adapted directly from the radio scripts. Yeah, right. It looked like Doctor Who. It looked like a really bad Tom. There's, Tom there's a reason for that. So Douglas Adams wrote for in 74 and 75, I think. He wrote for Doctor Who. He wrote a couple of the Tom Baker seasons oh, 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 along right. with Terry Nation. So the sets that The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy were shot on were most likely also Doctor Who sets. Yeah. <laughs> um, and featured a lot of the same production team, I think. Oh, right. So there's a lot of crossover as far as, you know, Good making eye, it possible Bill. to do so. <laughs> Before the, the movie, there was another format in between that uh, a lot of people either don't know about or have forgotten about. There was a video game. That's Yeah, that's right. It was put out by Infocom. Infocom yep. was a company that put out text adventure games. That's uh, right. Most notably Zork. They came out with a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text, text, adve text adventure text game. Text adventure right. game, yeah. Yeah, that's, oh my God, I completely forgot that that existed. Holy mackerel. I had gotten a, uh, let's just say, a copy of questionable... Uh, uh, questionable Genesis, let's just say that. And I'm glad I did not whip out my hard-earned money for it because... Well, what, you, what you're saying then is that your friend bought it for a girl that he liked and she just gave you a duplicate of it? That is exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and Because and, uh, that game was frustratingly hard. Was it? Yeah. Like one of the puzzles in the game, you had to type in the same wrong answer like eight times and on the ninth time they accepted it. Oh. Because just that's just the way the quirkiness of the game worked. And it was like, right, right, right. Like, north, no. North, no. Go north, no. North. And then on like the eighth try, you have walked north. Listen! <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, back when video games could get away with that without immediately getting a two star review at Steam. <laughs> this game sucks, man. Yeah. <laughs> it said north, and then I couldn't go north, and I can't type. And then. <laughs> And then ultimately it came out as the movie, and I'm going to say 2004. It was in 405. The movie was okay. I liked it. It's just that that is such a literary piece that I don't think it translates well to uh, to the screen, even the, even the small screen. I think it's too, like the jokes are too literal, and I don't mean literal yeah. as in real. What? I mean, No, you do. You mean literal as in literary, like yes. literal as in as written. Yeah. Right. You, that's actually right, exactly what you mean. Right. The... Uh, right. So there you go. Literally. Yeah. Th there's, there's a lot of play on words and stuff like that yes. that just don't translate yep. well into the... Into, into cinema. That's you, why, like, in the cinema version, they had the whole thing with the Vogons getting whacked in the face all the time. I was just, just about to, to bring that up. That, um, because, because the Vogons were all bureaucrats and everything mm -hmm. was by the book and paperwork and stuff like that, there was a scene where if you thought, if you used your brain, there was something that came up from the ground and smashed you in the face. Then you look at the Vogons and their face is all pushed up and the, their nose is actually above their eyes 
because they've been they've evolved to the point where they got smacked in the face so much, which is why they don't think anymore. It's right. like that's brilliant, but it doesn't translate well on the screen. They they did that in the film to give the Vogons a reason for being the way that they are. And, and the beautiful the beautiful thing about absurdist comedy like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is that that lack of context is one of the things that adds to the humor. Right. So it doesn't matter why the Vogons are bureaucratic, just that they are. <laughs> That's what's funny. It doesn't matter why they're the second worst poets in the galaxy, just that they are. <laughs> you know, that's what's funny. So so anyway, before we before we spend literally the whole show, and I said literally correctly, talking about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yep. we should go to the next day. But before we go there, yes. I want to bring up a good friend of ours here at the podcast, friend of the friend of the cast, <laughs> uh, Emperor Norton. In, who in 1859, also on this same day, self-proclaimed emperor of the United States of America and friend and protector of Mexico and Canada, uh, Emperor Norton issued an edict abolishing the U.S. Congress. Go, Emperor Norton. <laughs> go, go, Emperor Norton, yes. So e every time he comes around, and he's going to come around surprisingly often, I think. The 19th century his, vermin his supreme. Yep. 19th, 19th century vermin supreme, who people took literally. Yeah. Uh, literally. So. All right. Yes. August the 13th, 1988. Uh, the Shroud of Turin, which is long believed to be uh, the shroud, uh, which is a large cloth. The burial cloth of uh, the famous Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Um, in 1988, on October 13th, it was pretty much proven to be a, a hoax. Uh, so that was a thing. <laughs> is, a, is, a ho is a hoax the right word? I think they carbon dated the cloth and said this, this isn't... This isn't from the year oh yeah this is well, the year this is from the year twelve yeah. sixty to thirteen ninety yeah you know? like I, I mean they estimate that like Jesus would have been crucified in nineteen thirty three nineteen thirty three listen to me Jesus would have been like, it was like what was it right after he watched King yeah, Kong right before the war <laughs> so anyway uh, they estimate that Jesus would have been crucified in around thirty three uh, A D or C E as we call it now the they, when they carbon dated the uh, the Shroud of Turin. It was estimated to be more like in between 1260 and 1390, which is really oddly wide but specific dates. Uh, right. Now, I went to Catholic school, and I went to Catholic school prior to 1988, so I remember them talking about the Shroud of Turin and about how, you know, the way the image was, like, in the cloth, that it was, like, obviously, like, a, a high energy. So, like, whenever Jesus rose from the dead, it, like, burned the image into the cloth. And then I remember seeing a documentary about the Shroud of Turin after it was, uh, you know, proven to be from the, you know, probably the 13th century. Right. About, like, the guy, like, recreated it on the spot using, you know, a couple of different, you know, inks and stuff like that that were yeah. popular and around at that time. Well, I didn't even realize that the idea that the image was captured because, you know, Christ, as described, ascended to heaven. I thought it was... I thought it was because he was supposed to be under it for a long time. And then it dawned on me, like, three days isn't a long time. I've been in bed for three days, and I don't end up with a burial shroud. Yeah, I, you know, I just end up with sheets that smell like sweat. Yeah, this dude's filthy. severe desire to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I, I'm on – also, there's, like, three um, trains of thought you can go with this here. Is, one, is it a hoax? You know, did somebody from the 13th century be like, I uh, – I gotta prove that my God is real and powerful, so therefore I'm gonna doctor up this uh, this shroud. So that's that's one thing. That's one train of thought. The other train of thought is 
it was something else. Like it was like a, either an art piece or somebody was buried and they were freaking filthy. And it just so happened to look like, you know, either Jesus or Ted Nugent from the 70s. <laughs> or Guy Fawkes. You know, sort of the Guy Fawkes mask, right? Well, the other thing too is like, it, there's, a, there's definitely a business plan component to yeah. this. And the business plan component to this is like, imagine it's 1260 to 1390. You have like three choices of careers. You can be a peasant farmer, whereupon you die of plague or starve to death or die of freezing this in the winter. You can be a noble, at which point you could probably live for a while, but you'll probably also get plague or you'll die of syphilis or the peasants will rise up and de- decapitate you also sucky or you can be in the church which can be okay you can live for a long time but there's a lot of back and forth that goes along and priests get whacked all the time but it can happen but if you really want to be famous in the church you need to be stable to have a lot of parishioners and to bring a lot of money you need to have a relic so i'm sure there was some guy who was like ah this place could be a gold mine all we need is something like down the street you know saint thomas aquinas they've got the toenail of the you know third apostle like how are we gonna beat that and then you know if you go four miles past the river where they they burned all those heretics that you find the church and they've got the pinky bone of of john the baptist like get verified pinky bone like we need something fossilized booger of Pontius Pilate. right right we need something like what can we do we need something that's gonna have some pizzazz man we need some pizzazz we need need an eye catcher (laughs) they got a finger we'll have a whole body right but we can't have a whole body we'll just paint it on a sheet (laughs) no one will know the difference so and you end up with like, yes, yeah, comes with the Shroud of Turin. Now, after you've seen, yeah, the pinky's cool and the fingernail's neat, but the Shroud is, come check this out, you know? <laughs> I mean, good thing it was then and not now, because uh, 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 instant conspiracy theories. No, Nobody right. would have bought that for a second. Uh, I don't know when they actually claimed to have found the Shroud of Turin, but yeah, 1988. What did they do with it? They still have it? You know, they should just like put it in a box, like in the someone's cellar. Now it's like, hey, what's in the box? Uh, I don't want to talk about uh, it. You know, well, that's it's supposed to be moving around for a while. Like, where's that? Hey, where's that? Where's that shroud thing? Is that does that grandma's thing? Uh, all right, just put it over there. <laughs> and then generation after generation, finally somebody goes like, hey, this thing kind of looks like Jesus, <laughs> which is exactly the same reaction that people have had in the 1980s when they opened up like a bag of Cape Cod potato chips and they went, hey, this one looks like Check Jesus, out. and they ended up on the Tonight Check Show. My French toast. Uh, that the Shroud of Turin now is uh, on somebody's futon covering up a hole in the cloth. <laughs> no, no. Let's, let's not be that irreligious. It's it's being used as a, a coffee table no. cover. No, they're using it to patch a hole in a boat. Guess what? Next segment. <laughs> oh, all right. Yep. Next segment. Patching a hole in the boat. Uh, See October. See that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. October 14th, 1978, the first TV movie from a TV series is presented on television. It was the movie of the week, uh, and it was called Rescue from Gilligan's Island, and it reunited the cast minus Tina Louise, who had by then had already had enough of Gilligan's Island, um, to rejoin society courtesy of, of putting all of their huts together into a big raft and floating off the island in a storm. Multiple years, and I'm sure the professor's uh, massive brain power to figure that plan out, but the... Notable for being the first TV movie based on a TV series that had existed already. So there, after this one, there became shows like there was a Leave it to Beaver movie. There was a Dobie Gillis movie. There were some other films that were based on old TV sitcoms. Was it, wasn't Bob Denver in uh, Dobie Gillis as well? Bob Denver was in uh, Life and Loves yep. of Dobie Gillis, yes. And he was in the series that predated this movie, but was also sort of a direct copy of Gilligan's Island called Dusty's Trail, which aired for one season with him and Forrest Tucker, the same character types right. and everything, except they were all they're all sort of riding around the same like five Western sets in the, in the, in the Old wow. West. So the show didn't last long, 
long. They stitched a bunch of episodes together to make a movie that I remember seeing on TV called The Wackiest Wagon Train in the West, which didn't make any sense to me because it was just four TV episodes. But and then they and then they realized that there was a market for bringing back these old characters. So they did it first with Gilligan's Island. And then there were a couple of subsequent Gilligan's Island movies too with uh, the Harlem Globetrotters and some other stuff until the cast started to sort of drop off from old age. I remember watching it when I was a kid. I think they actually made the joke. It's like, dude, you you made like a satellite out of coconuts and you couldn't figure out how to stitch a couple of huts together. Uh, you know what I found out interesting, uh, recently interesting about... Uh, our good friend Bob Denver, the guy that played Gilligan. Good old Gilligan. He uh, yeah. he was v- like a notorious podhead. He was you know, I mean, he wasn't shy about it. Right. And nope. his name, Bob Denver, you know, Denver is the capital. That's a, there's a yeah, familiarity it's, it's in that. It's the capital of Colorado. I think it was his great-grandfather or maybe it was great-great-grandfather, whatever. It's in his lineage. Is the guy that discovered mm-hmm. Colorado. Yeah. And wow. interestingly enough, Colorado was the first uh, state to legalize marijuana, but that happened after Bob Denver died. So it's like it's like Moses never made his way to and never made it to the oh, promised land. Poor, that sucks. Yep. Poor Bob Denver. Just missed it, missed it by that much. <laughs> and uh, that that line is from Get Smart, and Get Smart was made into a movie at one point too. The nude bomb. Another kind of cool thing about Bob Denver, like aside from people knowing him from like Gilligan's Island and syndication, he was also on that goofy ass kids show, Far Out Space Nuts. I don't know if you remember that show. Oh, I certainly do. Which was sort of like if it was just the skipper and Gilligan shot into space, and the rest right, of the cast yeah. was left on Earth. Yeah, yeah, that show ran for one season on Saturday afternoons, and then went that into was, like uh, Saturday morning syndication as when we were kids. That was a Sid and Marty Croft acid it was, trip, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. And it was it was paired with the Lost Saucer, which had Jim Neighbors and Ruth Buzzy in it. All right. So stepping forward, October the fifteenth in eighteen sixty, uh, your good friend of mine, an eleven-year-old girl named Grace Bedell, writes to Abraham Lincoln telling him that he should grow a beard because if yes. he grew a beard then the ladies would find him more attractive well i mean ladies didn't vote at that time but right. i guess it was a, some sort of a ploy to get their their husbands to vote uh, but anyway 11 year old girl writes to abraham lincoln saying dude grow a beard that'd look hot and abraham lincoln like grew a beard and that's what happened and, and it's kind of cool like this weird example of of correspondence between the two i guess they wrote to them they wrote back and forth a few times with abraham uh, President Lincoln saying, "Like, geez, I'm not sure if I should grow a beard. I think that that would look kind of silly." And she said, "No, no, no. It look it look fine." And if he did, and he and she wasn't wrong, I guess, because mm-hmm. he was elected. And then closer to the to the end, I think he was already president, and he was touring the United States by train. He met her and sat with her for a little while, and she had written that you know he said, "Look, these are the whiskers I grew because you suggested it. These are the whiskers I grew for you. Isn't that great?" And then he gave her a hug and, and a kiss. Chris Hansen and- shows up. <laughs> yep. And uh, gave her a hug and a kiss and got back on the train. And, and that was it. He ghosted her after that. Um, from what I read, she had written to him in 1864 and said, Hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm Grace Bedell. And I suggest you grow a beard. And I could use a job at the Treasury. And it would help really help me like take care of my family. Or she never heard back from him. And then a, a couple of months later, you know, John Wilkes Booth assassinated the president at Ford's Theater. We do not know if Grace Bedell was involved in that. Brokenhearted. <laughs> I'd like to think not, but... <laughs> Dear John Wilkes Booth, you are my favorite actor. You should grow some beard and buy a Derringer. <laughs> so. That's, uh, wow, what a way to go about it. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's nothing to tire of that. That was all our, our it's all our fantasy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, interestingly enough, I, I can't remember who was the last person, but think about it. 
no president has had a beard in a very, 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 very long time. It's true. And I no think... president has had facial hair in quite some time. I mean, just thinking back in my own brain, I think Theodore Eisenhower, Eisenhower did not have a beard. Nope. And that's 1950. Yep. Truman so, yeah. didn't. Eisenhower didn't. Roosevelt yep. didn't. William Henry Harrison did. Theodore Roosevelt yep. did. Who's after Theodore Roosevelt? Got me. Uh, Woodrow I mean, Wilson. Nope. So, yeah, yeah, I think Theodore Roosevelt was the last the last president with facial hair. And before that, like, he was vice president, I think, for, for William Henry Harrison. All right. All but right. Enough, enough of that. Enough of uh, that. Move, moving on to the 16th. October 16th. In, in 1913, George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion premieres in Hofburg Theater in Vienna, Austria. Now Ooh, you, exciting. You may be asking yourselves, and I'm sure Bill is too, what the hell are you talking about, Jeff? And why is this important? Well, Pygmalion's a, a, an interesting story in that it's a Greek myth translated to sort of modern times, but it's been in, in the sphere of entertainment as a story pretty much forever. So the Greek myth is that there was a sculptor named Pygmalion who was carving a marble statue of what he believed was the most beautiful woman, the most perfect woman in the world, and while doing so, fell in love with her while he was carving the statue, and was so despondent that she was only made of marble and would never be alive. He sort of collapsed at her feet and sobbed and prayed to Venus to to intervene. And Venus saw the deep love that he had for the statue and made her real. The statue that was name was Galatea, made Galatea a real woman, so Pygmalion could, could be with his love and, and Galatea could be with Pygmalion. Whereupon, I'm sure like three or four months later, Pygmalion gave her a copy on audio of like <laughs> the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which she made copies for like, you know, uh, Alexander the Great because he was pretty cool and probably Philip of Macedon because she liked his dad. But anyway, um, but that can story just, of, of... Can I just interject here and say... This is the plot to the movie Mannequin, if I'm not it is. mistaken. It is, actually. It's the plot to the movie Mannequin. It was produced as Pygmalion, the play, where a, a professor finds a girl from the street and through a series of uh, complicated lessons in language and diction, makes her able to pass for a member of high society, even though she's not, not educated, uh, and changes her life, and it changes his life, too. It was remade as the My Fair Lady. It was remade kind of as Mannequin. Uh, you could make an argument she's that the Karate that. Kid is this story, and she's all that. So yeah. this story has been around and been done over and over and over and over again, and there's an endearing quality to it yeah. um, that makes it a fun story to dis- to sort of to see played out because the idea is so evocative and doesn't get tired with the retelling. I like I love this play. Yeah, you're the literary you're the literary guy, so you'll probably know more about this than I do. There's only like what is it like twelve different stories, and then everything else is just a variation on those, those themes. Yeah, stories. you could you could make that argument. I, I I think there's probably more than that, but I mean, ultimately, there are only so many plots you can have that involve people right. and relationships, and everything else is a variation on or an aberration of those. Sure. To explore some component of the human condition where Pygmalion explores the idea of perfection and true love mannequin <laughs> explores the idea of of Hollywood Montrose well actually of perfection and true love too but done more as a an outlandish comedy Ma- and, mannequin exposes the scene stealing qualities of Hollywood Montrose uh, yes as uh, played by the the much missed Meshack Taylor who is in the only real reason to watch that movie more than one time <laughs> uh, and the sequel too because he's in that yes which is an astonishingly awful movie but you know he's there and he's cashing that paycheck baby oh, yeah. he's giving it every single element of his of his being which makes it fun all right so let's go on to october, october 17th 
2007, the Dalai Lama <laughs> is awarded Congressional Gold Medal. United States Congressional Gold Medal. For Pope And what Fulton. you may not know, what, you may, what may, you may not know is that Pope Benedict won silver and Jerry Falwell came in a distant third for bronze. And the events consisted of robe wearing, dispensing of philosophical advice to random questions. And finally, the last category of all, the talent contest. Yes. Where the Dalai Lama was able to juggle not only three rubber balls and a chicken, but a chainsaw too. And Pope Benedict at the time did a flawless roller skating routine from the 1970s, set to the tune of Disco Inferno. <laughs> and Jerry Falwell was able to read the weight, height, and sex of random people who were placed in front of him in a darkened room. As a side note, uh, Jerry Falwell also swept the crying like a bitch category. <laughs> you know, prior to the 2007 games, the 2004 embezzlement was a big money ticket uh, uh, right. category that Jerry Falwell absolutely would have swept and done very well in. But unfortunately, those uh, that category was wiped out in the years prior. It was wiped out in, wiped out in 2004 when uh, Reverend Robert Schuler accused Jim Baker of malfeasance with regard to generating those bribes. So, But uh, anyway, congratulations to the Dalai Lama. They have not awarded the Congressional Gold Medal in this category or, or in this religious uh, competition since. So well done. Fundraising Medal of Honor went to uh, our friend Oral Roberts as well. If you were a betting man, who would you say has the better name, Oral Roberts or Evil Knievel? Because. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> uh, I have to go with e Evil Knievel because it it's so funny yeah. to say. Yeah, it was. That's like a name that a five year old gives to his hamster. Yes. <laughs> you know? Like. <laughs> Like, I'm going to call you Shoesy McLoozy <laughs> or Bodie McBoatface. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's get on to the 18th. All right. The 18th. Uh, 1851, October 18th, 1851. Uh, my favorite book, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, is published for the first time in London. It's published in three volumes called The Whale. And it would be published a few months later in the United States as a single volume, whereupon the name would become Moby Dick or The Whale. And after selling only 3,200 copies, it pretty much tanked. It did not capture anybody's imagination. It was described as being super overly complicated, way too transcendental, does a whole bunch of things that a book kind of didn't do at that time, which is to be sort of a textbook a little bit and an adventure story a little bit and a rumination on mortality and works all of these things together in this sort of giant stew so that the audiences that come to this book for different things can all get different things. But as a seminal single work, it's very difficult to penetrate. I have a, I have a similar story. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, Moby Dick, because it was written here in our hometown of New Bedford, Massachusetts, I have always felt obligated to read it, and I never have. I Well, for starters, I don't like fiction. I don't like reading fiction. I don't feel like I'm learning anything, and I, I, if I'm going to sit down and read, I want to learn stuff, you know? Well, let me tell you something, Bill. If you read chapters 2 through 4, chapters 13, 15, and like 27, you can learn about the importance of the Nantucket Whaler and opening the the world up to the United States and, and the West. You can learn about knots. You can also learn about different yeah. types let me, of whales. Let me, learn, let me so be a little a more specific. If I'm going to read a book, I want to learn something about a topic that I am interested in. Sheepshank yes. knots are not on the top of my, they're not even in my top 40. <laughs> Fair so, enough. Um, yes. I so. tried doing the audio book over on um, uh, manybooks.net, who we are not sponsored by because they're a free site. But they have uh, the audio version available over there. And the narrator of that story, and I think I've brought him up before, 
has the worst tone for that book because that book is solemn. That book is about the human condition. That well, that book, you know, it. it yeah, I can yeah. see that. I mean, I think there's a there's a lot to be said for having it in in Ishmael, who's who sort of starts the book with "Call me Ishmael." No, no, not this guy. This is how he starts, Jeff. This is how this guy starts. He goes, yep. "Call me Ishmael." It was many years ago. Never mind how many. That was this guy's cadence. I was yeah, like, yeah. "Nope, I can't deal with this guy." Yeah, that's a little. That's a little too. Uh... Golly gee willikers, let's go fight yeah, whales. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Moby Dick as narrated by the cast of Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> yeah. Wally. Why, that's a mighty fine-looking harpoon you got there, Queen Greg. <laughs> I did find recently, though, a radio play version uh, that was put out by mm-hmm. the BBC. And it was about two hours long, which is a little more digestible than the 24 hours that the audiobook was. And there was a part in that yeah. book that I busted out laughing because uh, Herman Melville used very similar language to what I use. Because if I smell mm-hmm. something that is like bad, like a horrible bad smell, I will refer to it as like it smells like the world is ending. In the part of the story where they're boiling the blubber off of the whales, yep. he refers to it as it smells like judgment day. And I was like, God, you talk to me, you bastard. Ah. It smells like Judgment Day is now a part of my vernacular, and I will not give him credit, not even a little bit. That's actually from a, a really good chapter called The Triworks, and what, what I like so much about that and that you picked that particular thing to latch to is it's the idea that the not only is the whale valuable to people, the only way that they can extract the valuable part of the whale is by using the whale's own body parts to render down the parts that are important. Yes. So that's like the triworks is like a big pot that you render down the fat in. But when the blubber's rendered, they take the cracklings is what they called, which is the leftover skin, bones, and meat. And that goes into the furnace to power the furnace that renders the rest of the whale. So its own body is being used to render it down. It's a horrific, horrific piece of imagery in the book, and it's wonderfully done. All right, let's move on to the celebrity birthdays. Yep, and I'm going to start on October 12th in 1956 guy by the name of Dave Vanian, who is the lead singer for the punk rock band The Damned. Awesome. I yeah. have so little experience with them, it's not even funny. I think you would like them a lot. You know one song, yep. just you know through osmosis, mm-hmm. the song Nasty, which was in the episode of the same name of The Young Ones. I think uh, the reason why The Damned gets overlooked is because of Dave Vanian. He looks like a vampire. He does. The band isn't goth. No. They're not a goth band. They're a punk band. That's right. But everybody kind of links them in with goth because Dave Vanian looks looks like he uh, has to sleep with rope in his coffin and you know during, during the day moderately popular right around the 19 late 1970s into the early 1980s where music was a big giant congealed mess of confusion anyway so you've got the, like the post-punk explosion and then you've got like the new romantic movement the second British invasion they came up about the same time as the sex pistols and the clash okay. they were in like the first class of the of the punk rock Okay. And if you want to hear something amazing, look up their cover of White Rabbit. Oh, I will. I will definitely by, by do that. By the Jefferson Airplane. It's fantastic. It's so suited for his voice. Oh, cool. And uh, October 13th, 1989, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC as she's known, uh, rep from New York City, as of 2018, is born in New York City. So happy birthday. Uh, on the 13th i know a lot of people on you know on both sides of the political fence and you know the people on whatever side that hate her 
Like they go on and on about her and what an idiot she is. And then I try to explain to them, I was like, do you realize she's a congressperson for the 14th District of New York? Do you even know who your congressperson is? Because right. I'm going to say you don't. Right. I'm gonna bet. I'm gonna bet that you don't. So why are you worked up about her when you don't even know who's in charge of your district? Right. And I think it it falls down to like it's anybody else who's in the public eye a lot. You know, they're gonna mm-hmm. draw a lot of attention from one side or the other, irrespective of you know what's actually important to a person's like local environment. So, yeah, I think she's. I think she's interesting to watch when she speaks on the floor of the the house, mm-hmm. and I love to hear her give interviews and stuff. And but my Congress people are just as important if I could name them, <laughs> which I can't at the moment. Yeah, see, I I looked mine up. It's Bill Keating. Oh, there you go. See. All right. Next up, October the 14th, uh, I, I picked this one out very special. Yes. I have, and we all have, but what I, what I refer to as a personality matrix, where you have like four or five different celebrities or fictional characters that kind of make up who you are. And this person is a really big part of my personality matrix. Uh, born October 14th in 1952 is Harry Anderson, better known as Judge Stone. All right, Judge Harry Stone from the Night Court series. He was also in the TV movie version of It. He played Richie. Interesting about Harry, if you're familiar with Night Court at all, is prior to Night Court, he had never acted before. Right. Harry Anderson was a, a comedian yeah, and a magician. magician. Yep. I remember right. I remember him uh, sort of popping up. I don't know if it was on like the Young Comedian specials, but... He used to show up every now and then on like uh, HBO and some of the USA Network comedy shows when when I was much younger and was always, always really funny. One of his friends had seen the script for the pilot for Night Court. The, ca- the, the character of Judge Stone was named Harry, was obsessed with magic, was obsessed with Mel Torme. Basically, it sounded like it was written for Harry Anderson. But the guy that wrote the the show, uh, Reinhold Wage, had no idea who Harry Anderson was. He just kind of like serendipitously wrote about this guy. And this guy just showed up for the audition and was like, hey, uh, this is basically me. And that's how we get the part. Jeez, that's awesome. Yeah. And if you watch like the first couple of seasons, you can see just how green Harry Anderson is. Yeah. All right. Moving on to the 15th. All right. The 15th. This seems to be a super duper literary, no pun intended, literary uh, episode. But uh for October 15th, 1881, one of the best British-American satire writers of all time, whose whose prose is super fun even now and holds up, is a guy named P.G. Woodhouse. You may not recognize that name. I don't. But <laughs> if you've watched uh, PBS at all in the last, I don't know, 25 or 30 years, you bump into a show called you know Jeeves and Wooster, which was a sitcom taken from the writings of P.G. Woodhouse, starring Stephen Fry as the butler... Jeeves. So if, when you think Jeeves, that's where it comes from, was from his books. And the person he served, Idiot Birdie, played by Hugh Laurie. This is the show that sort of made Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry okay. popular in the United States. Popular enough in the United States that they could have appeared on television programs here and people knew who they were. And which led to Stephen Fry showing up sometimes on that detective show Bones and to Hugh Laurie ending up ultimately on the show House and some other right. stuff. Yes. In his books, they're set in the 20s during the sort of jazz age. They're not tied to the reality of the world outside of high society. And, and Birdie, and always trying to sort of do the right thing and whatever is inept but Jeeves saves his ass all the time what's fun about about Woodhouse's prose is quality of some of his writing so let me let me just drop my favorite literary quote of all time as far as funny goes Mm -hmm. so this is this is from from one of his stories 
Freddy experienced the sort of abysmal soul sadness which afflicts one of Tolstoy's Russian peasants when, after putting in a heavy day's work of strangling his father, beating his wife, and dropping the baby into the city reservoir, he turns to the cupboard only to find the vodka bottle empty. I've, I've had similar days. So that's him, October 15th, P.G. Woodhouse. All right. You should go read his books. All right, so October 16th, 1947, Dave Zucker... Uh, who was known from the Zucker, Zucker, and Abrams team that wrote and directed Airplane. Airplane. And they also did a number of other um, uh, parody movies. They, but they, they kind of really set the stage for the parody movie. Um, yep. Like all the all the scary movies and Not Another Teen Movie and all those. All of that can be traced back to Airplane. Airplane, for sure. Yep. They also did um, Top Secret, yes. Val Kilmer's first movie. One of the cool things about, about Airplane, I don't know if you knew this, but it's... It, did you know that it was, it was a remake? Yes, it was based on... It's a, it's a remake of this Canadian film called uh, like Red Alert. Zero a, Hour, airplane. I think, or something. Zero Hour, yes. Zero Hour, that's the name yeah, of it. Yeah, they actually wanted to and shoot can, Airplane in black and white to make it look more like the original. <laughs> more like Zero Hour, yes. And you can, you can go online and watch a comparison scene by scene where it's pretty much just airplane without any jokes. It's just played dead straight. It's super duper interesting to watch. What? Um, and it, it, you can see how much more, how much funnier airplane is because of the little things that they did to the script to just build on what was already there in zero. One of hour. my uh, most or least ambitious weekends is I sat there with a clicker counting how many mm-hmm. jokes there were in airplane, airplane two and top secret. And I don't re- I well, don't remember. They didn't have anything to do with Airplane Yeah, too. I know that, but yeah. They don't even acknowledge the existence right. of that film. I don't remember what the numbers were. I just remember that Top Secret won by an enormous margin. All right. Uh, October 17th, 1956. The first African-American woman in space uh, on STS-47, Mae Jemison. She was born in Decatur, Alabama. And she has stated for the record that her interest in space, space science, came from seeing uh, Nichelle Nicole's portrayal of Lieutenant Uhura on the original classic Star Trek. Oh, wow. uh, direct correlation between being inspired by an African-American woman on television in a science position on a spaceship to becoming one of herself. So uh, amazing, amazing uh, woman, Mae Jemison. Yeah. Happy birthday. And wrapping up the birthdays, October 18th, 1960, Jean-Claude Van Damme. The muscles from Brussels. Yep, making ponytails famous for God knows how long. The, the the one thing that always sticks out in my mind about Jean-Claude Van Damme, besides like, you know, to, to see him do the splits between two uh, table chairs. Two chairs, yeah. Yeah. You remember in the 90s whenever like slob chic was in style? <laughs> sure. They had interviewed him with his, whoever his uh, spouse was at the time. Not like an interview, but it was just like, you know, he's walking by at a red carpet or whatever. And they just like stuck the mic in his face. And he was like, they were like, hey, have you ever been to a flea market? And he was like, <laughs> a flea market? What do they sell, fleas? You know? Right. And they were basically just like saying, like, what a what a jerk this guy is. He doesn't even like, right. ignore, like, oh, he's too rich to go for flea markets. It was like, yeah, well, you didn't know what they were like five months ago either there, uh, right. Kennedy or whoever it was yeah, on MTV. I don't, I don't, right. I don't go to flea markets either. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, Jeez. The, I, I always remember how much I loved um, – Kickboxer, which I th- I saw multiple times in the cinema and was was very inspired. At the time, I was in I was involved in martial arts and 
I thought that film was just amazing. I was just about to say. I watched it since then, and it's less amazing. Than I was just about to say, wasn't he in that movie yeah. Pit Fighter? And then I remember that Pit Fighter was actually a video game. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, it was a video game. It had just about as much plot as Kickboxer. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. Um, With a better so much so that half, halfway through the first time I saw it, I was hurling quarters at the screen thinking <laughs> I needed to do that to keep the movie going. But <laughs> All right. So now All right. it is time for... Worst song ever. All right, so what is our contender this week? Our contender for the worst song ever this week brings from the fevered year of 1976, bicentennial year, <laughs> and a year where I'm not sure what happened, but we ended up with a number one song called Disco Duck by a radio DJ and novelty song artist named Rick Dees, or as his band was known, Rick Dees and his band of idiots. And I remember waiting by the radio to hear this song when I was a kid oh, really? because I thought it was hilarious. Because I remember I remember hating it back then. I, I remember waiting by the radio for Rick oh, Dees wow. and Disco Duck because I thought it was so funny. I was really? also probably, I had probably drank like eight bottles of Yoo-Hoo and had eaten mm-hmm. a handful of Twinkies and Fritos. So I'm not sure I was in my right mind, but I remember like thinking this was the funniest thing. This Donald Duck character as a disco dancing duck. And I ended up buying a novelty album that had this on it and listened to it over and over again and never listened to it again after 1976. <laughs> by 1977, I was over it. Yeah. And I was over it. I was over it by the, by the bicentennial celebrations of 1970. No, uh, now, by, the whole uh, thing, the whole thing with this song, like it was number one. America, yes. I have a question for you. What the hell is your problem? This I love novelty music. I love novelty music. I used to have collections and collections of just like KTEL records full of novelty songs, okay? But like this song, let's play the clip. Flapping my arms, I begin to cluck. Look at me, I'm the disco good i mean the mu- the musicians are good that's a, that's a cutting crew and all that right, right. but i'm talking about like the song structure the lyrical structure the way it's sung this rings of you remember in the, like the 1980s whenever you would see like the cable access commercials for like the local businesses and yeah. there would always be some like white dude like my name is gus and i'm here to say i like discount oil changes in a major way you know <laughs> that's the level we're working on here this is like like i said it's just it's a novelty song, but it's not even a good one. Yeah, like, I, I know. I mean, with Ray Stevens making songs like Tarzan and Bridget the Midget around the same time, what is, what is this? I don't well, get it. Well, I, I, I don't know. Again, I was very young, and I thought this song was astonishing when I was... I was young and was stupid. Young and I'm stupid. old and stupid now. <laughs> Back when the greatest morning in the world could be a bowl of Fruit Loops and some jelly on toast in front of a TV, spooling out Hong Kong Fooey. Uh, <laughs> now, Rick Dees went yep. on to take over Casey Kasem's spot yeah, on American Top 40. Yep, still does it every week. I, if I go visit my mom on Sunday, that's what's on the radio. Now, I, like, this is such like a, like a dark closet skeleton for him, too. I wonder if, like, if, you, if you wrote a letter, you know, like, Casey, could you please play <laughs> Knowing Me, Knowing You, you know? <laughs> Uh, if you wrote to Rick Dees and say, hey, could, could you please play as a long-distance dedication, Disco Duck? Because my girlfriend gave away all my Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy tapes. 
<laughs> and, oh, I think that would be perfect. And uh, <laughs> uh, all right, so that's going to be disco. Duck. Let's uh, let's wrap up the show and let's give the answer the all answer right. to my trivia question. Well, the trivia question was Easter eggs, which are little hidden things inside of movies and video games and other forms of media. Uh, why are they called Easter eggs? Do you know? I'm going to go out on a limb and say because Hollywood studios only hire fictional rabbits to edit their films. Good guess. Uh, actually, it, it, How close am it I? doesn't go back all that far. It only dates back to haha, 1976 and ducks lay eggs, but it has nothing to do with the disco duck. Uh, it does have everything to do with the Rocky Horror Picture Show. What the hell are you talking okay. about, Bill? On the set, the cast of uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show... They were playing, they were having an Easter egg hunt and they had all, they had hidden all these like, you know, Easter eggs and stuff like that around the set. So while they're filming, there was still Easter eggs on the set visible. And if you watch the Rocky oh. Horror Picture Show and you look around, you can see the eggs from their Easter egg hunt somewhere in certain scenes. A very huh. visible one is whenever Riff. No, no, no. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil oh, okay. it. Don't spoil it. For those spoil of. It. No, no, tell, tell, For tell me. For those of you listening. No, no, no. Don't, 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 uh, when Riff Raff is no, no, sitting yeah. on the throne, on uh, yeah. on Frankenfurter's throne, there's an Easter egg visible on Yes. Underneath. Huh. Yeah. All right. I'll have to go look yep. for that. That'll give me another reason to watch that movie again. So. And That's that cool. is the where the term Easter eggs come from. So. Huh. I was, I was, Bill, I was way off. Yeah. <laughs> I was way, way yeah. off. I want everybody to know. Yeah. That. You guessed Easter Bunny when you should have guessed Transsexual. From, I dressed. I guessed or, or, Easter Bunny. You should have guessed uh, Sweet Transvestite from from Transylvania. Well, that'll teach yep. me. That'll learn you. All right. That'll learn you. All right, everybody. We will see you next week. Have a great week, guys. All right. All right. Bye, everybody. Good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly. This week was way better last year. You can follow and or message us over on Instagram or on Facebook at T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure you tell your friends if you like our show. And if you don't like our show, tell your friends you did like it. It'll be a great prank you can play on them. Have a good week, guys.